Hello and welcome to this celebration of movie excellence in 2024. I'm Alex Zane and this is Countdown to the BAFTAs, where in this series we look back at five movies that were long-listed, along with the nominees, for that most coveted award, Best Film, at the EE BAFTA Film Awards 2024. This time, it's past lives. It was so funny, it was almost like a chamber farce. John would be in hair makeup, getting ready for a scene in Teo, getting a fitting, the ADs would be like, very careful. In this wide-ranging interview, we discuss how they got from the creative spark that started it all to the challenges they faced in bringing it to the screen. And a quick warning, we will be talking about the story. So if you haven't yet, go see the movie, come back and get listening. This is Countdown to the BAFTAs. Who do you think they are to each other? I think the white guy and the Asian girl are a couple, and the Asian guy is her brother. Nora and Sung, two deeply connected childhood friends, are torn apart after Nora's family emigrates from South Korea. Two decades later, they are reunited in New York for one fateful week as they confront notions of destiny, love, and the choices that make a life through the Korean concept of Inyeon. Hi, I'm Pam Koffler. I'm one of the producers of Past Lives. Let me begin by saying congratulations. How does it feel to have your film being recognised by the BAFTA members in this way? Oh, it's it's just incredible. And my partner, Christine Vashon, and I say all the time, I think one quality we share is we never get cynical. We've been doing it a very long time, and it still feels so thrilling and meaningful when people connect with a movie. And it is one of the things that has been the most rewarding about past lives is the degree to which people are are truly emotionally affected by it and the variations in why they are. And so it feels absolutely fantastic. We, we've made movies in England. We have roots internationally in, our, in the filmmaking community. So it really feels very welcoming and gratifying to be recognized by BAFTA. Pamela discovered writer-director Celine Song's script by chance. We were in the depth of the pandemic, and we were all separated. Wonderful agent at CAA, Sue Carls, and I kept in touch. And I said to her, please just send me the best scripts you have. And one of those scripts was Past Lives. And in a vacuum, alone in my house, I read the script and just thought, this is a knockout. In the spring of 2021, it had been cast, and Celine had her DP and her production designer on board and a line producer, and A24 was ready to finance the movie and felt like, you know what, let's, we can, we are now in that moment of the pandemic post-vaccine when there's a way to do this. It's time to get on the runway to physically, creatively, and support a first-time filmmaker, get going. And we did a Zoom with Celine, another lovely 
aspect of how the team came together is David Hinojosa, who was our third producer. He had been with Killer Films for 10 years. And it was in the pandemic that he made his decision, you know, if I don't go and start my own company, I never will. And I'm going to do this. And and with our blessing and with love and um, support, he started 2 a.m. And we all three reunited to produce Past Lives. So... Um, wow, this is this is incredible. Almost some of the themes at play in the movie transcend the movie, and were happening behind the scenes with you. It really, it really felt like that. It was also, you know, we all had a lot going on because the pandemic started in March. By September, the big studios, the streamers, had enough resources and infrastructure to figure out how to finish things. That process was completely, utterly impossible for independent films. It was just too expensive. The risk was too fraught. There was no way to pull that off. So when the vaccine rolled out, that's when independent films started rolling. And we rolled first. So I don't know how I got on that tangent, but yes, it really, it was very wrapped up in so many ways in which we felt like this team really was the right team to support Celine in this moment. And I, I guess another reason why you you are obviously a perfect producer for Celine is uh, is the fact that you have a lot of experience with up and coming directors. Now this is Celine's first feature. She comes from a theatre background. Do you, in that moment, upon your first meeting, you said you met over Zoom. Are you listening to Celine and thinking, right, this is, a, this is a leap from stage to film. Is this person saying the right things? Is this person going to be, to put it bluntly, capable of delivering this feature that they want to make? Yeah, that's always the, that's always the question. But there were immediate signals that made us understand that, that she could. You know, it's always a leap, mm. It's a leap with experienced directors. Just the alchemy of making a film is not a predictable one. But I would say it started to, to me with the screenplay, which was so cinematic and had such bold structural ideas. And even in the, in the, the screen direction, there were certain decisions that she made as a writer that were extremely cinematic and deliberate. And then just the way she talked about what she wanted from the film and how she was engaging with her department heads and how clear the story was in her mind and in her body. Hmm. It became three-dimensional very, very quickly. She's collaborative. She's clear. She's a good communicator. She's a very social a socially adept person. So aside from the ability to make movies, there's a basic level of, you know, who who are you? What's your temperament? How will you be as the leader of a hundred people? Mm. At that point, it was really just what doesn't she know and how do we guide her into the pragmatic and logistic 
process of filmmaking. And how do we help her on those days when little problem happens? And she's like, is this a really little problem? Should I let it roll off my back? Or is this a really big problem? And, and, and just so I, I, I fully understand. So by the time, um, by the time um, uh, yourself uh, and your team got involved in producing this, the, the casting had been finalised because I know um, Greta Lee has spoken about initially hearing about the film, it going away and then it coming back to her because the uh, the age of um, her character Nora had, uh, had changed considerably. So that was at an earlier stage by the time you came to be part of this. That's right. Okay. That's right. We we were um, the lucky recipients of Celine's process, casting process, um, prior to us coming on board. So it was an even, you know, it was it was just such an exciting. I mean, we've worked with John Magaro before. Very aware of Greta and her work, and uh, Teo was new to us, but clearly just the the trio of those actors also was a signal of Celine's acumen and instincts. Obviously, that COVID was a, a factor around the shoot. Did the cast have chance to meet before they embarked on actually shooting the film or, or were they meeting for the first time on that first day of shooting? Celine very deliberately did not let John and Teo meet each other until the scene in which they met. Uh, hi, uh, nice to meet you. Uh, Are you hungry? Hmm? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, pasta? Pasta? <laughs> yeah, you like pasta? Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's get pasta. Pasta. It was so funny. It was almost like a chamber farce. John would be in hair makeup, getting ready for a scene, and Teo might have been somewhere on the set getting a fitting, and the ADs would be, like, very careful to make sure they didn't see each other. And I wonder if it might have derived from a way in which she's very aware of in the theatrical experience, it's kind of all about that. You get one shot, there it is, there's the play. It's being performed. Because when they saw each other, that first take, that was it, that was the moment. And you feel it. You really do. So there was even a like, how'd that scene go with Teo? How was that day? You know, <laughs> how'd that go? <laughs> I mean, and I'm sure it bled into so many of the, the other scenes because I'm guessing then the, uh, the scene where Nora's brushing her teeth and her husband's like, Is he attractive? I think so. He's really masculine in this way that I think is so Korean. Are you attracted to him? I don't think so. That scene, and he had not met Teo at that point, John Hen. <laughs> no. Nope. I appreciate you pulling back the curtain on this because these the, the, that dynamic between the three of them obviously it's the heart of the film but it's so it's so fascinating to hear that story and think about watching those moments. Yeah. Yeah. 
before we leave the the the, the shooting uh, part of the interview and and the experience of actually making the film on the ground now obviously uh, no movie ever runs entirely smoothly during production uh, was there a particularly big challenge that you faced during this was there a particularly tough day on the shoot something to overcome Celine may have a different view because it was her first film and I've made so many films mm. and I've had so many like literally catastrophic days where you're just like such big problems that you stop shooting. We did not, in my view, we did not have anything like that. We had a flood in a location that happened overnight. We showed up and Celine had to really reimagine the blocking and staging of a scene, which is really hard for a first-time director. I think she would say that was a very hard day, but it was a normal problem-solving of a big problem with great people who were flexible and creative and figured it out. So it was, and it was with children, it was the classroom. Mm. And there, the, the scene where the little boys make young Nora feel alienated and lonely and alone. That was meant to be in a classroom. And we had to just punt and do it outside, which was not small. We had a lot of extras. They were kids. They were on a clock. So that was a tough day. And we solved it. But the driving scene where Teo leaves and crosses the bridge at sunrise was very hard to pull off with our schedule and with our budget. And we had to really be precise. There was a precision to the scheduling and when we had to wrap the day before, when we could start the next day. It was Labor Day weekend. We had all sorts of turnaround concerns, but it was like, we're going for it. And we did it. And I actually have a funny picture because it was sunrise. We had to capture the drive exactly as the sun was rising. And we were a small unit, but our locations department, despite the 3 a.m. call time, managed to paste up on some like lamppost, catering here, wardrobe here, Extras here, and the picture is so absurd. It's just a bunch of signs taped to a lamppost in the dark, which is nonsensical. But it's like, it's this image that shows me, like, no matter what a film crew is asked to do, they somehow find a way to do it. Gems, like some kid was pasting paper on a lamppost in the middle of New York City Street at three in the morning, when really all we're doing is driving over a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> I love I'll have that. to send you the picture. It's so absurd, but it kind of warmed my heart. Yes, please do. I need to see that picture. <laughs> that really does encapsulate film crews to a film T. Film crews. That's, mm -hmm. that's amazing. And in terms of watching Celine work, you've touched on this slightly already, but you've worked with many directors. Um, was there a moment watching her when you realised not only was this um, this this director of theatre, someone coming from a theatre background, capable of making this feature, but was also something quite special. I don't know what other producers feel, but I really will admit to I just 
can never tell. I know what I'm seeing. I know at the monitor, the performances were wonderful. The design, the photography, it really had a coherence, a kind of beautiful grounded realism with a with a dash of elegance and beauty that it's not social realism. It's a constructed realism, but it feels real and grounded and elegant. I could see that in the frame and the footage. I knew the script was unimpeachably excellent. The final chemistry of the, the cut, you just don't know. So I, I was not, I mean, it was thrilling and exciting, and I had a high level of confidence, but I wouldn't be honest if I said, okay, I can see this is going to be. But I will say the very first time I saw the first cut, I was like, okay, this is going to be a great film. Like, we got this. I, it, was, it, was a, it was a cutting process that was... Great films have come out of rigorous, difficult cutting processes where you try a lot of things and you maybe have more than one editor. You more maybe have more than one composer. A lot of work can happen in post that shapes and forms a movie, which is a valid way to get to greatness. This, I thought, was great at the first cut. Obviously, uh, we hear a lot about the idea of... Um films going through various processes to, to get to the finished cut, whether it's a, a test screening, putting it in front of a test audience, getting scorecards, and then the feedback influencing perhaps changes that may or may not be made to the film. Is that a process that past lives went through as well? I'd say the answer to that is yes and no. We did not do a formal feedback screening. Mm. We had small friends and family screenings. Celine showed it to trusted colleagues. We did show the movie. We did have an actual formal feedback screening really for the purposes of marketing the movie, because those can be really useful. It tells you who's really responding to this film and how to help the movie find its core audience based on who's loving it so much. And that then can steer the marketing and distribution team to understand like, okay, this is how we get this movie into the hands of the people who love it and also introduce it to people who may not know they're going to love it. So that was really useful. And honestly, the feedback of that screening just confirmed our, our sense of what the film was, how to fine tune it, best to the people who are responding to it. And significant changes did not result mm. from that screening. That was really just kind of reflecting back at us what we had and who we thought would connect with it and our confidence that this might connect beyond just that core audience. Because look at the surprise. Men in their 30s and 40s are loving the film. Mm -hmm. And it's not just immigrants. It's not just the Asian community. It's really sort of everybody is finding something in this film and that tells you a lot. That really does. And I'm so pleased you brought that up because I wanted to talk about that because the film has had a, a, a huge uh, amount of success. And 
you know, that's not always the, the case for a movie. Even a, a film of this quality, it's not destined to find an audience the way it has done. And you, you mentioned the marketing there, and I touched on it at the start, the almost organic word of mouth that seems to have come along with this film. If, if you could put your finger on one thing that seems to have led past lives to this success, what, what do you think that is? I think the success of past lives is really because the universality of the themes is, is very unique and very special. I think every single person alive has some version of leaving as a state of being, whether it's childhood, whether it's a country, whether it's your nuclear family as you grow up, and has that sort of poignance, sadness, um, sense of a former self that is now reinventing and finding your way into adulthood. And that can be writ large in the immigrant experience, or it can be much more subtle and simply be you grow up and you're not the kid you were. You're a new person, but there's parts of you that will always be there and there's parts of you that will be shed by virtue of time passing. And I think the movie captures that dramatically. It dramatizes it in a simple, elegant, potent way so everyone can relate to it. Mm. And that's really powerful. This is a serious adult drama. and You will probably know a lot more about this than me, but the... the there is a bit of a pushback, isn't there, about making films that are serious adult dramas or dramas in general, almost like don't call it a drama because a drama might struggle to find an audience. Do you see this movie as really being an example of how that is not the case? Yes, I do. I think it's interesting when A24 was releasing the film and cutting the trailer, they really leaned into the romance. That scary word drama that everyone says doesn't work, will this work because of the romance? And that is a, that's a genre too. Mm. It's a dimension of the drama that qualifies it. So yes, this is an adult drama. I think part of why it worked is the identity of the film in the conversation really circulates around love and and can be talked about as it's not a romantic comedy but it really is a romantic drama that said i think that is just how it got started i think that's the trailer was so romantic and i think it might have even dropped on valentine's day or very soon after but what it tells me is that if a film is great and really works and people connect with it, it will work. I think it's just getting it that first push so that people start talking about it is the work. So talk me through the moment that you first had the opportunity to watch it with an audience, an audience who weren't involved in the film in any way. That first screening with that audience, how are you feeling in that moment as the, the film begins? Talk me through your experience. The experience of seeing the film for the first time with the real audience was, was pretty extraordinary and I would call a career highlight. Um, it was Sundance. It was a packed 
house at the Eccles Theater. We had done the sound test with Celine moments before, so we were ready. And you could hear a pin drop. You just felt in the room the people holding their breath with connection and having completely lost themselves and the crying at the end. Mm -hmm. There's just so much crying and sniffles and the quiet moment when it finally ended and everyone collects themselves. It just really was wow. It was really one of the most extraordinary screenings I've been in. And it was a sign that what we thought this movie had was really what it was delivering to an audience. I think I, I think I remember reading about that Sundance screening and the film received a, a double standing ovation. It, it, I, I'm not sure I even remember. I remember reading it going, I don't even know what a double standing ovation is. Is that when people sit down and then stand up and, and applaud again? It might be. I was a little bit in a daze of the adrenaline rushing out of my body because, you know, when your movie's about to premiere, all of a sudden you start worrying about the irrational things like, wait, is it the right DCP? And, oh, my God, did we forget to credit this? You know, just anxiety starts swirling and... You know, how will Celine do? Is she going to faint in the middle because it's so, you know, you just start getting irrationally anxious and your body's in a state of defensive crouch. And then when it's over and it's successful, you literally are like a wet piece of pasta on the floor. (laughs) (sighs) We did it. (laughs) I don't remember. (laughs) That last scene especially, I mean, many of the people I've spoken to about this film, the first thing we all jumped to is that final scene and uh, and the power that that has. I, I, before we started, I was telling you about my reaction to it. What was it like? Were you anticipating that moment and waiting to see the effect it had on that audience and if what you'd felt and what the film intended actually landed with that audience in that last moment? You know what? I got distracted, Alex, in that question because I was thinking about the end of the movie and how the first time I saw it, what broke me up and I started to cry was before that moment, which was when John and Teo are in the bar and he says, you know, you and I have Inyun. And that's when I lost it. And I don't think I stopped until the end. So repeat the question, because I started to tear up thinking about that first moment when I saw it. Um, it, that, it was it, you, you, you basically answered the question without even hearing the yeah. end of the question. I was just interested to know, what are you on tenterhooks at that point, thinking, is this going to land with the audience? As clearly it's landed with you. One thing that happens when you've seen the movie a lot of times is that moment when the Uber, they're waiting for the Uber and they're standing like this in that wide shot. And one thing that Celine wrote in the script that I thought was a sign of what a filmmaker she was is they're waiting for the Uber for two minutes and it will take two full minutes in the film. 
It did take two full minutes, but it takes a long time and you're waiting and I start to feel like, are people going to get impatient? Like how that moment was always, I'm on alert, but the anticipation of that and the bold choice of staying in that shot and watching them stand there. And we've all been in those moments like, I don't want to say goodbye. I don't want this to end. What do I do? I'm feeling so many feelings. And then the car comes up. I, I'm just very alert in that moment to how audiences are experiencing it. I doubt the movie shot chronologically. Very few movies do. But was that end scene shot towards the end of the actual yes. It was. Yes, it, it was. Our AD did a great job of, of really trying to allow the shooting order to synchronize with the emotional arc of the story. So that was definitely towards the end of our schedule. Wow. It's an, an amazing end uh, to the film. Uh, and it's it's almost the end of our time together. I'm just going to ask you uh, a few big, quick-fire questions uh, to end on. And we'll start with, um, what uh, was your favourite day uh, that you can recall from either the shoot or the edit of Past Lives? Was there one day that stuck out in particular? I think my favourite day of the shoot was the day when Greta and Teo met in Madison Square Park. Hands on. It was a beautiful day. We had great weather. It's a gorgeous park. It was a pleasant day of shooting and it was a beautiful scene. It just, I remember the pleasure and being in contact with, we're so lucky to do this, to watch great artists do their work and be outside and watch this infrastructure, this crazy circus that we set up every day and we break down every day. It just felt like this is really a great job. And some of the choices that Celine makes and the performance Teo gives in that scene, you really feel for him even before Greta as Nora turns up the the way he does his hair, the rucksack on both shoulders. He's an adult man who very much looks like the boy she left behind. He looks so childlike in that moment. You really empathise with him. Yeah. Conversely, what, in your memory, was one of the more difficult days on the shoot or in the edit of Past Lives? Was there one day that was the most challenging? The visa process, getting visas for the children and for the parents was dicey to get them to the United States in time for quarantine and testing. And it was one of those situations where we tracked it, we did everything right, but those days of getting bureaucratic paperwork done were really, everything was um, unpredictable. And... Taylor, the line producer, and I were looking at the calendar and looking at how this is tracking, and we're like, you know what? We have to think of the unthinkable, which is this visa process really is delayed, and we are not going to have these actors on set when we need them. And there kind of wasn't a good solution. So there were a few days of like, I can't think about that not happening, because that is a real curveball. 
And Celine would come in and say, how are we doing on the visas? And we'd say, you know what? Haven't heard yet. Cheerful, and but it's going to come through. And I thought, what's going to happen if it doesn't? And it just was, there was no solution. So you just can't use too much energy. Those days were a little dark. <laughs> like I just was carrying in my body. Like, that's a really tough one. This just has to happen. And, you know, you do what you do. You're diligent. You follow up. You push. Like, who can make phone calls? And in the nick of time, we got our visas and actors got on airplanes. (laughs) What, Pamela, do you consider the toughest part of a producer's job? There's two dimensions to it. I think it's the very, very, very beginning when everything's abstract, when you're starting the whole operation and building it and you just don't know what the problems are and you have to think very clearly how do I build this and how do I build it well and how do I understand what this is it's it's amorphous and you are starting it then once it's going everyone does their job and it all moves forward I think the hardest part for me is if you're on set and a director and an actor are not finding their way together, that's a space I find very scary because that's such a foundational magic and I'm not sure I know what to say or how to fix it. All I can do is try to understand how do I support everyone in what might be a difficult moment, Mm. but I don't have the language to unlock the problem. That's the first thing I look for on the day one of a set. How are the actors and the director working together? And it's almost always a problem I don't have to worry about because it's such a core connection. But there are days when an actor is having issues, not with the director, but just sort of with the with the scenario we've set up, with the system. And that's such a delicate place because to me, it's just the actors are what you see. And almost everything else is behind the scenes. Pamela, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about past lives. Congratulations once again. Thank you. Thanks for the conversation. It was great. My thanks to Pamela Koffler and, of course, to you for listening. Follow the podcast to explore the rest of the nominees and much more in the months to come. Discover the full long list at BAFTA.org. Thanks, too, to the producers of this series, Matt Hill and Ollie Peart at Rethink Audio, with sound design by Peregrine Pez Andrews. I'm Alex Zane. This was a BAFTA production. I'll see you again as the countdown to the EE BAFTA Film Awards 2024 continues.